Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Extra Words. I'm your host, Mark Hackett, and today I'm talking with Pastor Claude Achow, who serves at Church of the Resurrection in Charlottesville, Virginia. We'll be talking about his new book, Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. Two quick notes before we get started, though. First, I just want to say that this book is a phenomenal work of Christian theology. Claude demonstrates how the Black experience shown in 10 incredible pieces of 20th century African-American literature can guide us all toward sharper theological thinking and more faithful living. The second thing is that you may hear a bit of familiarity between us. Claude was briefly my pastor during a season of church transition in both our lives. Um, (laughs) Our time together was too short, but I found a lot of healing and growth under his teaching. And I think you'll understand why after listening to our conversation. Okay, that's enough from me. Here we go. There is rightly such a desire to hold doctrinal truth really well. Mm. Uh, And so what that means with Jesus is really holding his divinity really, really tightly and really emphasizing that, which is obviously very important. But it it ends up happening in the realm of overemphasis and then undercutting his real humanity, which then undercuts our inclination to see suffering people and to make the connection between suffering people and Jesus who suffered in a real way as a human being. Pastor Claude Atchow, welcome to the show. Mark's good to be with you. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to see you again. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little bit. It's always it's always fun to get to reconnect. Yeah, for sure. Uh, before we dive into your book, uh, reading black books, which I have here, it's uh, you might not be able to see, but it's like so dog-eared that I pretty much folded every page. So, <laughs> well, but yeah, before we before we dive into the book, I'd love for you to just share with listeners um, just a little of your background. I have never read a book like this before, and only a few pages in, I thought, you know, Claude is likely one of only a few people who could pull off writing uh, this book with such sharpness and uh, depth. So yeah, could you just share some of your background and how, uh, I guess, your kind of collision of the spiritual and academic journey led to led to this book? Gladly. Appreciate, I appreciate those kind words. That, that means a lot to me. Yeah, this, um, you know, so this book for me, it really is a, a collision of two worlds. It felt like uh, I had the opportunity with this book to bring together two big parts of uh, my story, but also two big parts of just, uh, I think, two wonderful things, uh, which is uh, theology or Christian reflection and uh, and literature. I think these are two really, really wonderful gifts, two really important um, uh things in, in, in life. And for me, part of how this book came about was my, um, journey and interest in English literature. And, uh, I studied that as an undergrad, studied that as a graduate student, and just always had a love of books. I was just a big part of my, my life growing up, just myself and my mom. The library has always been a favorite place to be. I love being at bookstores, love just being around books, uh, the idea of books, even if I'm not going to read them, just all that has really appealed to me. And uh, I found through undergrad and through graduate school, as I got further into my literary studies, uh, at the same time, I was moving on a parallel track uh, of moving further into my faith, really like taking taking my discipleship to Jesus uh, personally and really taking ownership over it. But I wasn't quite sure how these how those things were going to integrate and overlap. Like I, I felt like I was reading wonderful things in English class, had great professors, great teachers, but there was no, obviously, uh, you know, I was at a public school, there's no sort of straight, explicit bridge into my discipleship, into my faith, and the way I would think about the world as, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. And so I had always kind of wondered, I know these two things inform each other, but I wasn't sure how. And, uh, you know, as I grew and and thought more and, and read more, uh, eventually I was in a spot where I felt like, okay, maybe I can offer a book that will bridge these two worlds. So, so for me, in a big sense, this, uh, reading black books is taking my kind of literary side and my pastor side and bringing them together and hopefully, um, offering something that'll be useful to others. 
Yeah. And I think it's, it might be in the intro of your book, you, and you just spoke to this a little of this kind of dual literary and theological approach to, to these, these pieces of African-American literature. I want to dive into a few of those in the, in a moment, because that's like a really fascinating way to look at this. But before we do that idea, maybe a new concept for some listeners. So I'm wondering if you could just explain the importance of how approaching some of these works, but maybe even just fiction and poem poetry and things like that more broadly through this dual lens uh why that can be why that can be so helpful you know when we when we read things i think it's it's just helpful to think through the lens we're using as we read so uh, you know for folks listening that um are familiar with reading uh scripture or reading the bible you know there's lenses we use when we read that as well so there's sort of like the literary the, the literal lens which is sort of like these are what the words say um but then we also make the move to like the spiritual which is um sort of okay what's the the spiritual value of what these words say so we're, we're quite often doing that. We can even do that with something, um, you know, like our favorite novels, right? We do it with our favorite movies too. When we think about this is what happened in the movie, but like, here's the deeper lesson or meaning that I'm taking yeah. away, right? We do that with Harry Potter. We do that. We do that with all sorts of stuff. So I think it's just helpful. Maybe if this feels new to people, it's, um, we kind of do it, do this intuitively. And mm. what I wanted to do with literature was to take what usually happens with literature, which is a literary reading, you know, so you may be attending to the form, the themes, um, the symbolism, the structure of, of a novel or a poem. And you kind of analyze it on that level, which is really important, right? Um, I think, uh, you know, a really, re a really simplistic way of doing this is like taking a story and tracing like the theme of a color through a story or something like that. Right. Um, but I think attending to the literary form is really important, but I think there's a, there's another gift that literature gives us as well, which is not just attending to sort of the, the literary form or the themes, but then asking deeper questions about who God is, what it means to live in the world and, uh, how the, the literary forms and themes actually address the really deep questions at the heart of our faith and our living. And that's where I think things become really interesting. So the other way to think about it maybe is like rungs of a ladder. The first, like in order to do any of this, you have to grab hold of the first rung, which is like, what is, what is the book about? What are these themes? You know, uh, how is the author working and constructing ideas? But then once you begin to have that foundation, you can reach a little bit further building off of that to ask deeper questions, like a question of, you know, how, even if the author doesn't mention it, how does this book show us ideas about sin and whether sin is maybe personal or systemic or something maybe different and more complicated that, that builds off of a, a literary reading. So it's, so it's trying to push into the deeper questions of who are we, what does it mean to live in God's world in a way that's, that's true and just. So in the book, you cover 10 pieces of 20th century African-American literature that speak to um, the Black experience. And each chapter and the work you do weaving in and out in between these pieces, pieces of literature is, uh, it's really remarkable. Um, but, you know, I got to the last page of the book and I was wondering, you know, which was your favorite chapter to write out of all of these and and why? Yeah, you know, um, my, f so the hardest one for me to write was the chapter on Zora Neale Hurston's uh, novel, Moses, Man of the Mountain. This is a mm. novel where she remixes. So I'm not answering questions. question. I will answer your question. That's <laughs> <laughs> not what I asked. Um, I, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you my favorite and the hardest. Yeah. That, that yeah. one was really, um, so in that novel, what Hurston does is she sort of remixes and retells the Exodus narrative. Um, mm. And she does it in a way that's really debated in terms of, is it satirical? Is it like trying to point out a deeper lesson? Is she critiquing the way leadership is happening in uh, African-American culture, you know, in the kind of um, middle 20th century? Like, what is she really up to? What What is for certain is she really has a deep grasp of the biblical story and she makes these really creative alterations, even though, you know, for her, it wasn't, it's not her faith tradition. That was a hard chapter to write because the book is so complicated and there's so much to mm -hmm. say about the value of the Exodus and the liberation uh, uh, theme of salvation for African-American culture. So that was just a hard one to write. Um, I would say my favorite chapter, uh, it's difficult, but difficult to choose one. 
probably probably the last one, um, which is uh, the chapter on hope, which is rooted in uh, a reading of Margaret Walker's poem uh, entitled For My People, which I'd really commend to folks. You know, if you're if you're like, hey, I want to I want to read more in African-American literature, maybe for the first time or I want to go a little bit further. And I haven't uh, and I haven't read some in a while. I think that poem is a great starting place. Uh, so that was my favorite, mostly because as a writer, I felt like I got further into the groove kind of coming toward the end of the project. Um, and so I was kind of getting a feel for how to approach things. But then I, I also feel that that poem ties together so many themes from the books because it deals with so much of African-American experience, highs, lows, racism, um, uh, nihilism, despair, uh, spiritual, religious hypocrisy, all these different sort of things come together in that poem. So it felt like a perfect sort of capstone for me on, on this journey as a writer. And also it has the, it has the theme of hope without doing so in a way that's really trite and fluffy. So that, I would say that's probably my favorite. How, how about you? Did you, as a reader, did you have a chapter that, you know, really connected with you that, that you wouldn't name your favorite? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll kind of do what you did and, and answer the hardest chapter and then the favorite, um, favorite, definitely the last chapter. Um, you know, I think what you just said, it, it really wraps up the book uh, and ties all the stories you examine together um, in, a, in a really compelling way. I think the the hardest chapter for me was probably chapter four, uh, which examines Christ re-crucified and, and the Black Christ. Yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll share for a few minutes because this chapter, I feel like hit me really hard. You know, in that chapter, you also cite James uh, Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And maybe for listeners who aren't familiar, Cone argues that the cross and the lynching tree are two of the most uh, poignant symbols in African-American life. And then bouncing back to Cullen's poem, uh, Christ Recrucified, the opening phrase there is the South is crucifying Christ again. And there, there are two things that really captured, captured my attention as a reader as I got to that chapter. The first is that for me, at least, this chapter really shows the practicality of the book. So like my day job is working with uh, various oppressed people groups in Sudan. And I started really noticing this, gosh, probably nine or 10 years ago now that the Jesus presented in American spaces, specifically white spaces, is often a Jesus who is convenient or who doesn't really require much of us beyond like outward expressions of personal piety and, you know, maybe submission to some sort of cultural hierarchy. But at the same time, you know, over the past like 10 years, I've also seen the way the cross is viewed in Christian communities in Sudan. You know, these are communities that have historically been at risk of being wiped out. And, you know, the, the way the cross is often viewed there is much more visceral and it leans into it leans more into the the Jesus we see in the the biblical witness, who, as you write on page sixty eight, suffers for like and with us. You know, I don't want to suggest this, the situation here and in, in Sudan is the same because it's it's not. <laughs> but I, I I did see enough similarities between the experiences presented in your book and the ones in Sudan that it's kind of impossible not to unsee them. Uh, so reading you know this chapter and your theological explorations helped me personally con connect some dots in my own faith and with some of the people I work with. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess I should say thank you for that. <laughs> oh, um, that's Yeah, but the, the, the second thing that really jumped out to me uh, is the connection between the cross and the lynching tree itself, which raises, uh, when you get into this in the book, obviously, which raises some pretty serious questions about what even atonement is. I think on page 64, you, you write, uh, I'm going to read a little quote here. While not a substitute for biblical or theological sources, Colin's two poems help us wade a bit deeper into the wondrous mystery of the cross by, con by contemplating the cross from the poetic, historic, and personal angles that the African-American Christian experience offers. From this angle, we can sidestep the two popular errors that befall even the brightest theologians' minds and devoted believers. Reductionism, which is reducing the, the multifaceted wonder of the atonement to a single image or theory, and relativism, which is flattening all the images and atonement. When I read that, I couldn't help but think how 
in some Christian spaces, the theory that is penal substitutionary atonement gets often treated in practice as being more important than Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, believe the gospel has, I guess, a, a more forensic element to it. But I think when that's the only thing that we see, we run a pretty severe risk of saying and doing some things that are not very Christ-like. So, yeah, I, I guess if there's a, a question here, A, is everything I said crazy? <laughs> and B, um, <laughs> you know, how, how can these these two poems in this chapter help us see a much more holistic and more beautiful picture of the cross? Mm. I, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you have a right read on the stuff. It, there is a real, um, and it's, there's always a temptation to be drawn toward one image of, of something, uh, especially, especially things that are true, because things that are true are so deep um, that we can't grab hold of them completely. So we hold mm -hmm. really tight to the, the part that we can grab, which you can, which makes a lot of sense. Right. And so, uh, so, but we have to recognize there's a challenge there, right? It's the same thing. You know, I think about this even as a preacher where, you know, if I set the agenda for what I, what I want to preach from, uh, in terms of scripture, you know, that's good. But like, I, I am inclined to gravitate toward one place or one genre and, uh, that over time by itself can end up being less, less than helpful. I think it's the same thing when we think about how we speak about, uh, Jesus's death, how we think about, uh, the atonement and, and what Jesus has done for us, what, what God through Jesus has done for us. So I think that's always really important. And, but what's interesting is in different places, there's, there's different sort of, you know, we, we play the one note instead of the full harmony. So I think there is a lot of contextual, um, dynamics to this as well, but, but I think, the more we recognize um, the fullness of of what Jesus has done and the kind of multiplicity of metaphors and language and, and images that the that the scripture use, the, the better we will be in both understanding what Jesus has done, celebrating that and then embodying the application that comes out of that. So I, I think the real benefit from Cullen's poems um, which uh, that whole chapter for me, as I mentioned, is really indebted to, as you mentioned, Cohn's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. He, he, he's the first person I saw pay attention to those poems from Cullen. And uh, he, he goes into such depth with other pieces of African-American art and literature that when I read that, I thought, oh, there's more. There's more to be said with the Cullen poems. And that's I, I wanted to kind of honor his work in that way. Um, but I think what Cullen's poems do and what Cohn's work does is they just help make the connection between uh, the fact that Jesus Jesus truly suffered as a human being. And I think what can happen in some of our, uh, some of our American, uh, American evangelical churches, especially is, um, there's, there is rightly such a desire to hold doctrinal truth really well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what that means with Jesus is really holding his divinity really, really tightly and really emphasizing that, which is obviously very important, but it, it ends up happening in the realm of overemphasis and then undercutting his real humanity, which then undercuts our inclination to see suffering people and to make the connection between suffering people and Jesus who suffered in a real way as a human being. Right. And so when those connections begin to be loosened or even severed, um, it becomes that much easier for us to uh, kind of trample over suffering people instead of immediately think, well, our savior suffered as a true human being, right? We should see suffering people and immediately have this deep, uh, deep kind of pull towards them because it ought to remind us of, uh, of, of our Lord. So I think what Cullen's poems do and what Cohen does by putting the cross and lynching tree together is they help, uh, it helps in, in many ways, make that connection un unavoidable, right? And it's drawing us into a tra tradition that is really built on seeing that connection that Jesus suffers with for and like the forgotten and despised people of the world. Yeah, um, uh, I think it's page 67. You point out that Cohn's assessment of how African-American views of the cross are actually part of a long thread in historical Christianity that goes all the way back to French philosopher Peter Abelard's moral influence theory of Christian atonement. And remind me, Abelard lived in what, the, the 12th century? Is that right? 
That sounds about right. I think he also has a yeah. really crazy kind of like love story. Uh, he was a university <laughs> of Paris, which produced a lot of great theologians or interesting influential yeah. theologians. And I think he has a pretty crazy love story. I, I remember reading just a tiny bit about it. I was like, someone's got to make this a movie. So somebody out, whatever screenwriter out here is listening to the podcast that uh, I wanted a 10% royalty. But yeah, so Abelard, um, you know, you can think of passages like, um, uh, Christ showed his love, uh, God shows love for us so that while we were still sinners, uh, Christ died for us. Right. Mm-hmm. Where it's sort of like the cross is showing something and there's, there's obviously different ways of reading those passages, but the idea that seeing the sacrifice, um, that God has made, it actually changes us. Like it melts the heart, right. It inflames the heart with love as we see this great act of, uh, identification and rescue that God has undertaken. And I think that actually, I think, you know, I think Cohn's work really draws on that because he, he's, he's uh, arguing rightly that African-Americans uh, saw, um, saw their suffering, saw Christ's suffering and saw that in his suffering, he suffered like us and he understands. Um, and that drew them towards him in, in, in this way. Right. So, so what's operative there is less of a, um, kind of a, necessarily a, an immediate forensic atonement sort of, uh, sort of movement, mm-hmm. but is, but is really sort of this, um, attractional pull, right. Uh, Willie Jennings talks about, uh, being drawn like this, uh, magnetism of the crucif- crucified flesh draw- drawing us, uh, to himself, which I think is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I brought Abelar up is cause I think at least here where I'm in the American South, if you start suggesting that, the cross is bigger than penal substitutionary atonement. People tend to tense up or uh, or get really nervous. And you know, th- the only reason I wanted to bring this up is to say that you know everything you'd said just said isn't new, right? Like that, this goes back at least eight hundred years in Christian history. It certainly has roots that stretches back even further. But I don't know. I, I think that's that's just really interesting, and people should know that. I think this points. This part of the of the book really pointed to me and reminded me that some of the most lowercase o orthodox Christians in American history have always been African our African American brothers and sisters, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. Let's let's keep let's keep moving along here. Um, so I, I, you know, we were just talking about atonement theory. I think that's a good segue into talking about your your chapter on sin, which you which you mentioned earlier. Here you lean on Richard Wright's Native Son, uh, which I read in my high school AP English class. Okay. But yeah, out of all the books I, I read in high school, Native Son has always stuck with me in a way that others did not. Mm. Reading it at the time, I was probably, I mean, not probably, I was perhaps too young and maybe a little too ignorant to really understand some of the, the theological implications of, na- of Native Son. But, you know, in a lot of American Christian world today, there's a very pronounced false dichotomy between personal sin and systemic sin. And in this chapter, you do a really remarkable job of, uh, of using native sin to, to hold these two types of sin together and show that, you know, yes, they are distinct, but they are also very closely connected. And yeah, I'm wondering if you could just share a little on how native sin can be perhaps a, a helpful corrective to some of these misunderstandings of, of sin that some of us, I think are struggling to kind of wrap our, wrap our minds around. Yeah. Native son is a really, I think a really important text in that sense. Um, because what it does is it follows, it follows the existence of really sort of one singular character inside of a social system. So it does both of those things in terms of its attention. So the, the novel follows uh, a, a young teen, a young black teenager in Southside Chicago named Bigger Thomas um, in the 30, 30s, 40s. And he is, I mean, I mean, the opening of the novel is him in the, you know, living with his family and his siblings in a tiny one bedroom, like basically one bedroom apartment. And there's a rat on the loose and his mom's yelling, everyone's freaking out. And they've you know, they have Bigger grabbed a pan and killed a rat. And it's, it's really clear, like, you know, talking about symbolism and all this sort of stuff. It's kind of, this is who bigger is, right? He's going to be like this rat. He's going, he's trapped in a setting, no matter what he does, even if he makes the best choices within his environment, I mean, his end is, is pretty much sealed and certain. And so the whole novel, you're kind of watching 
speaker make choices from within a context and you watch him make choices that are um, one hand under in some points understandable because he's trying to exercise agency. And on the other hand, he makes other choices that are completely reprehensible. They're the worst choice that he could make. But you can also see how the conditions are um, are giving him little uh, little recourse, not to mention if you were going to look at this through a trauma sort of perspective as well. Mm -hmm. So what happens with the novel is you you realize that um, we make choice, we make real personal choices, but there's also structures that shape, uh, shape and influence those choices. And it's really not one or the other. Um, it's, it's really actually a question of teasing out, um, the interconnected nature between the choices that we make as individuals and the societies and structures that we inhabit. Um, and that becomes really clear because there's also people, there's also uh, white people who are really well-meaning and progressive that enter into bigger's life that want to work toward equality, but because they're not thinking about the structures around them, they do these acts of goodwill that actually create more problems for bigger and put him in more precarious situations where bigger has impossible choices. And then on top of that begins to make evil choices. So what the novel does is if you sort of take the plain literary reading, you would just say, wow, this is a novel that has to do with, uh, complicated, complicated factors of racism, uh, class structure, uh, uh, systems. But if you do the theological, you'll ask all of those, but then you'll ask the questions about sin that we're asking, right? And how do we love, how do we love our neighbor when our, our neighbor and our lives are not just a matter of individual choices, but the relations and structures that we live in socially. So, so it's a, it's a really um, difficult novel and kind of a painful novel, but I yeah. think it's really yeah. important for all of those reasons. Yeah. And uh, you just touched on this, but I, I think native son is a reminder too that sin in all its forms really does harm everyone and everything it touches, including people who gain, maybe even gain material benefits from sin. So, you yeah. know, you, you know, you were talking about some of the progressive white characters in the, in the, in the story who seem in a lot of ways to mean well, but because they, uh, perhaps have a, have a blind spot, you know, they're, they become part of the problem. And, you know, I think of the, the character, um, Henry Dalton, who is one of the owners yes. of the, the, the black ghetto in the story. And, you know, he's a character that in a lot of ways is, is very familiar to, to the story of America, right? Here's, here's a white businessman who doesn't rent apartments to black folk outside of what's been established as the ghetto area, but he also supports black organizations and mm -hmm. outreach programs. And, uh, Henry even employs bigger. It, it feels like Henry uses, Sometimes it feels like Henry really is trying to help and other times it feels like he's using philanthropy to avoid changing his business practices in a way that would actually help the black community who rents from him improve their own circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so so Henry Henry is able in some ways to make make himself look like he is really helping without actually having to change uh make any really big changes in himself or in the system he oversees and and you know the just I mean I guess spoiler alerts a little bit, but it it definitely leaves Henry as a character. It definitely leaves him morally impaired, but his actions are also a big part of what leads to his daughter's own murder. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Yeah. His, it's interesting because he also um, there's a, there's a point. Um, it's not fresh to my mind, but there's a point where he does ask even a question like, oh, what, what do you want me to do? Like, do you want me to, mm -hmm. um, do you want me to like atone for this or something yeah. like that? You know, and yeah. I think, you know <laughs> like the, this is a, I mean, a part of the novel, this is a preachy book for sure. Like, um, yeah. And I think Wright had a, a real strong agenda that he wanted to achieve in, in, in this in this novel. And he didn't want anyone to read it and come away feeling comfortable or read it with and read it and, and walk away unscathed. Right. He, he really wanted to challenge folks. And um, I think in some ways he succeeds in that. But be but because of that, that um, that desire, you know, there's there's no character that that leaves um, without being checked. And but I, but I think that does suggest in order to we can't just think about the problems in our society in terms of the choices that an individual person makes. Right. We and, and that seems so basic because we know we're none of us exists 
on our own. Like we don't live in a vacuum. We, 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 we overlap with each other, right. In how we live and, and who we are. And so if there's going to be solutions to things, um, certainly individuals must do particular things, but there's also things that go beyond that. Right. And that's, that's fundamental. So I really do commend right for crafting something that really pushes us to think in those terms. I feel like it's easy to lean toward talking about African-American literature just as a corrective for the historic ill health in white Christian American culture. And these stories are definitely more than capable of doing that. And that's that's good and, mm-hmm. and needed. Um, but, you know, the further I got into your book, the more I noticed how universal these stories are. They seem to have they seem to have a remarkable ability to meet just about anyone where they are in their professions, relationships, communities, and make us think about who we are and what we say and do at a much much deeper level. You know, I I guess now that I'm saying that out loud, <laughs> I suppose these stories are also as direct and particular as they are universal. Yes. So yeah. So could you share maybe one or two examples? of this coming together of universality and particularity that go beyond race, you know, from these, from these texts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's really well said. And I think that's, that's, that's how, you know, you're dealing with literature. That's really worthwhile, right? Because it, it, it can, it manages to at the same time be really particular to its setting, its characters, its culture, but also if it's true, it's going to transcend that at the same time without mm-hmm. losing particularity, like it's going to scale. Um, and I think that's, that's why these texts stand the test of time. And that's why there's a lot of stuff that, that comes out, uh, in a present or contemporary that, that won't stand the test of time is because it's either too universal or too particular in a way that it, it doesn't, it doesn't bring both together in a way that true art is, is I think meant to do. I think an example, um, you know, one example that does as well is uh, Ellison's Invisible Man. Um, it, it's it's really fascinating. I mentioned this in the book that the, the first word of the book is I, I am an invisible man. And the last word mm-hmm. of the book is you, you know, how, you know, how uh, maybe on the lower frequencies, I also speak for you, I think is the last sentence pretty close to. And I think it, it's a really great example of what the book does because it's the search for meaning for an unnamed black protagonist in the Jim Crow South and then the urban North and, and through, through politics, through activism, through Marxism, through all these different sort of things, through the church, all this stuff, uh, education. And fundamentally, it's it's the search for dignity and meaning, right? It's a search for, as you know, we say today, like the desire to be seen. Um, and that's certainly a part of the African-American story, but it's also part of the human story as well. So I think Ellison, the reason that novel is one of the best that has come from American soil is because it moves in both of those modes, right? It can play in both of those notes. So I think that's a, that's a really important novel, especially at a time where I think people are... Um, particularly thinking about um, their place in the world, who they are, um, and and how they f- find a, pers- a sense of personal fulfillment and value in a world that, you know, is <laughs> um, changing from coronavirus, from war, from all these sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's a novel, novel that stands on those terms. And then I think uh, even briefly also the novel Passing, which does deal in particular with race. It also deals with the question of friendship between two black women, one that can pass as white and one that, um, uh, one that, that does not. And I think it deals with themes of friendship, themes of betrayal. Like what do you do when that, with the, uh, the old best friend comes back into your life after 10 years away and you realize where we're yeah. in two totally different places, but, but I value this, but, but wait a second, maybe I'm jealous, all, all that sort of stuff. So I think those are two, uh, I think all the texts do that, but those are two particular examples that stand out. Yeah, as you were talking, another another one came to mind from James Baldwin's "Go Tell It on the Mountain," which I think that that's chapter three. Um, yes. I'm obviously not a pastor, but but I would imagine most pastors reading the the character of Gabriel in that story would probably have all of the feelings about 
all of what they're reading, right? <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that is a great one. Yeah, I, I mean, I think about that quite a bit. I think it, there's certain yeah. characters that you read in when you're reading stories, and they just sort of stick with you. And I think he's definitely one that that is just going to be with me. Um, and I, I think for for clergy pastors, yeah, I mean, it's uh, for for many different reasons, but for him in particular, that it's sort of a to me a must read book. It's a true kind of uh, pastors and the classics. There was a uh, there was a, I can't remember who published it several years ago, there was a pastors in the classics sort of book anthology and it had, you know, stuff like Scarlet Letter and different things like that. Yeah. It did not have, did not have go tell on the mountains. So if that gets revised, that, that needs to be included. So, you know, chasing the, the universality of this uh, literature a bit further is, this is something I think you just alluded to. We seem to be living in a really interesting moment in history. Like in many ways, American culture is secularizing away from a specific kind of Christendom, even as I see a lot of younger Christians really showing promising signs of moving toward toward Jesus and, and the best of the early church that we see in scripture. I guess jumping back a, a few years, you know, Trumpism and the pandemic exposed uh, really down to the roots, a lot of ugliness and rot in our institutions and churches, which you know, the fracturing and divisions are still are still happening in the in the aftermath of that. But I guess moving towards a, an actual question here. Uh, I know most younger folks listening feel frustrated with perhaps some of the older generation of church leaders who don't seem to know what to do now that the the false sense of triumphalism they had has really been, I'll just say, just crushed by reality. Mm -hmm. The result of that seems to be that in all kinds of different churches, there's a generation of leaders that's having a, a difficult time passing the torch to, to a new generation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in this moment of what seems to be some sort of cultural transition, you know, maybe even a spiritual transition to, to a certain degree, you know, I see a lot of confusion and anxiety about where, where this is all heading. Mm -hmm. I know this is like a massive question, but I, uh, <laughs> I, I wonder, is there, is there any wisdom in the African-American literature you present in the book that perhaps can speak to how all of us Christians who are living in this moment can kind of move in this, in this confusing time? Mm. Yeah. I think of one, you know, one thing that immediately comes to mind is, uh, is, is maybe the Go Tell on Mountain, the Baldwin novel. Okay. Um, the, the way I look at that novel, there's many different ways to read, to, to obviously to read a text. And there's many ways that people read that novel. Uh, I think there's, a, I think the way I read it is legitimate. And I think there's a way to read it where you can see in that book that there's always, even in poor conditions, uh, even if there's abuses of religion and sort of toxic Christianity, which happens in the novel, uh, uh, which is really what quite, quite pronounced despite all of those things, uh, there God is, God always has a witness. God will always call people to, to bear witness to, uh, to the truth. And you see that in the novel where it's actually the unlikely character, the kind of the least, some of the least church people that end up saying things that are actually really true. And it's, it's really the sort of, you can, you see it as a reader, like, oh, that's, that's the truth. Like this person, even though you think that they're, you know, they're, they're crazy or they don't belong here, um, they're speaking God's truth. And that becomes clear as the novel progresses, even though the situation and the history of the family is, is really dire and really abusive, uh, there's still a witness. And so I think that that does suggest, uh, and it really actually maybe is a reminder that no matter what, um, sort of challenges we're facing, uh, what sort of damage we inflict on ourselves uh, as, as Christians, uh, no matter what sort of damage we absorb from others, uh, that the Lord always will will raise up a witness um, to testify in word and deed to the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ. So, so I, I think that um, I think that's important, and I think that that sort of dovetails into the Margaret Walker poem that I mentioned earlier um, for my people because it does end on a note of hope as well. But the hope is very paradoxical. So, uh, without kind of getting into a ton of detail, I think it's also recognizing that when things are very bad, that's when hope makes the most sense. That's when hope is actually necessary. That's, that's 
that's when we're people of hope because of the resurrection. So I would actually really suggest those two texts. Um, and maybe even people, you know, the, the Walker poem is short. People could read that and, and read it thinking through, okay, where, where does this point to a hope that maybe is paradoxical, but is nonetheless real. So I would offer those two as ways, uh, as kind of words for maybe our moment applied to, uh, the life of the church. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That, that is being a shorter poem. I've read it a few times. I feel like I picked up on different things in it each time I read it. Like it's a very, um, yeah. there's a lot packed in there. <laughs> there really, Yeah, there really is. And, yeah. you know, if you read it, I think one of the things is with, with these texts, if people do take up, you know, my book and, and these books alongside of them, you know, you don't have to do, you don't have to do both, but if you can read them with others, uh, they're j- just deeply enriching. And especially if you read this poem, you read it out loud, you'll, you'll pick up some different things and it, it really is a, it's, it's sort of an endless well. So yeah, so so in that in your last chapter, uh, Margaret Walker's poem, you know, you also write about the Apostle Paul quite a bit in that chapter, and Paul I think can be frustrating for some people because he's historically he hasn't always been handled well. You point out on page one sixty six that some Black Christians over the centuries have joyfully embraced Jesus even as they've rejected Paul because because some Pauline texts were so severely misused that to the point of condoning slavery and you know on perhaps the the opposite side of the rubik's cube that is pauline interpretation you you accurately point out on the next few pages that some folks wrongly use paul today to deny uh what you said earlier ethnic bonds identity and solidarity um in the name of jesus and yeah, I'm just wondering if you could share maybe a little of how Walker's poem and Paul actually point us to something that is much more beautiful and healthier than than just those two options of having to reject one in favor of the other and how they actually go hand in hand really well. You, so uh, so Walker's poem makes that movement in a really interesting way, because obviously the title of the poem is for my people, right? My people. Uh, but then as you move through the poem, it moves, it moves into this language of let all Adams and Eves come, let every generation come, right? Let a, let a, uh, a new piece be written in the sky. Let a new, let the dirges disappear. Let a new world arise. Let, you know, a new group of men come and take it by force. I think um, if I remember correctly. It, so, so it's, it makes us move from my to all. So we were talking about the particular and universal, like it's, it's it's kind of doing that same movement. And that's a, that's a really interesting thing because it, it does. So moving from my to all without losing the my, right. It's still a poem for her people, but now in the progression of what she's calling her people into it's a widening into this call for all people. And so I think those are movements that are really important. And I think those are movements that correct against um, the proclivity to sort of to, to make either of the errors on, on whichever side you choose. I think because of that, to me, again, a theological reading or a kind of a, a Christian reading, it, it evokes so much of the apostle Paul when he talks about in Romans nine yearning for his kinsmen, according to the flesh. To me, that's the sim it's a similar heartbeat as when Walker talks about for my people. Right. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we know that Paul also will say in Galatians three twenty eight. 328 that there's neither slave nor free male nor, male nor female um, Greek nor Jew but we're one in Christ but he, he'll say that but he's not afraid to say I yearn for my kinsmen according to the flesh so he's not afraid yeah. to do the my people and all people and rather what we learn from from his witness his life really from the book of Acts and from the whole scriptures in the New Testament is that God is actually very interested in doing both of those things, right? Of calling, calling uh, the nations into his kingdom without the nations losing who they are, right? What, who they are actually becomes uh, sanctified. They go deeper in their ethnic bonds, um, their cultural bonds in a, in a way that's holy and true as they're now called into uh, this group of people that are, that make up the inhabitants of God's kingdom. So you see both of those movements happen at the same time. So I think that's just, um, I think that's really important. I think there are ways that if we do one or the other, we, we make some serious mistakes, right? If we just do all Galatians 3.28, we try to sort of, um, turn cultures neutral, turn people's heritages neutral, turn people's mm-hmm. ethnicities neutral. And so the only thing that matters is that you are a Christian. 
and everything is, else is blank, which we really know if everything else is blank, you're just going to slide in the cultural default. So it's not that we, we yes. don't have a culture anymore. It's just, it's just we have, you know, whatever the stock default is for the place and time that we're in. So we're always enculturated. Yeah. And so if we hold Galatians 3.28 and we understand, uh, you know, the my impulse, right, um, that we do belong to a people. And I think uh, some of this gets into the fact that, you know, we, we have to remember uh the early church is very Jewish, right? So, so they were, yeah. they were, do, they were trying to do this. They were struggling, but they were trying to hold both of those together. I think that's an important word for us. Right. And I think that comes downstream from the incarnation that at the heart of our faith is that Christ became flesh, not generic. He really became a human. And so there's yeah. something beautiful about our cultures, about our ethnicity, certainly things to be redeemed, right. Necessarily, but, but Christ really entered in. So that teaches us that we can hold both of those things together rather than um, falling into either side of the ditch. Yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect segue into to the last two questions I have here. You know, as this conversation starts coming in for a landing, you're a pastor in Charlottesville, Virginia, a pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, where I live before that. Two beautiful cities which hold a lot of hope and promise, but also two cities with some really painful history and some wounds that haven't healed, uh, including some very recent wounds. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear a little from you on how you think African-American literature has shaped how you see your role as a pastor in communities that are that are very complicated. Yeah, I think literature helps because literature is pretty complicated, too. And so I think it, it helps because it, it, it can um, it can help us to be OK with the uh complications and the, the, the sort of, um, challenges, the messiness of things, right. The more, um, there's science behind this too. There's research behind, you know, people who read literature, they can, they can sort of handle ambiguity a little bit better. They can deal with sort of challenges and conflicts in a different sort of way. So I think in, in that sense, it's actually, it's, it's sort of a helpful preparation. I think it's also helpful in the sense where if you're, if you're in sort of work where you're trying to bring people together in a way that is mutually enriching, you're trying to help people understand, Hey, our life is better if we do, uh, if we, if we join together and integrate, um, and integrate with one another as peers and as people who need each other. I think if you're trying to do work like that in any, any space, bringing people together around common things is really important. And that's how you do that. So I think I find for me, um, especially if I'm working with, uh, you know, working with white Christians, the literature is really helpful because it, it becomes a way, uh, it becomes a text from which people learn to grow and are shaped into the type of people that really, I think at, at, at heart, they, they want to be right. That we want, we all want to be where we can move into, uh, what Dr. King really calls that beloved community. So I find the literature is, is really key in that sort of way. Um, so, so those, those are important. Uh, I think literature actually helps shape the way people see and the way people see, uh, see things is, is how they're going to live. So it, it changes people in that sense. It's slow. Um, but at the same time, I think it's, I think it's necessary. Uh, I find that people that are usually engaging well locally in community, going into, uh, places where where they're the ones who are actually different, they do so in healthy ways. Uh, I find that those are people that have, usually they have a, bibliography behind them, right? They, they, they've, they've read yeah. and thought about these things, right. In, in a, in a way that that's now shaped what they're thinking and how they, how they seek to live. So I think the literature is really key. It's interesting. We, I think we talk a lot about how the Bible has authority over us. And I think sometimes we, we can confuse even what that means, <laughs> or maybe, maybe, that's not the right way of putting it. That can mean different things at the same time, right? And that, mm -hmm. hey, like the scriptures are the place we can, are a place we can go to, perhaps the central place we can go to, to, to learn about God and, and who we are and, yeah. and how God and humanity comes back together. But scripture, I guess in a more literary sense, and also, you know, these texts you present in the book have authority over us and it changes who we are as we read them. Mm -hmm. It makes us see things in a different way. 
Yeah, it does. Be, it does in a way because reading is a really submissive act in the sense we're like, usually when we're in conversation with people where um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real act of humility as well. When we're mm-hmm. in conversation with folks, we're usually getting ready to reply, right? We're, we're thinking about what we're going to say when they're done. But when you read, you're, you're not really doing that. You're just sort of like, these are the words and I'm going to shut up. Yeah. And I'm going <laughs> to read these words and I'm going to do that for 200 yeah. pages. I mean, it's a, it's a yeah. pretty, it's a, it's a pretty big sign of trust to read it, to read a novel, to read a book, right? Which is obviously why we get so upset if we read a book that's bad, harmful. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just, you know, I just uh, entered into, you know, a posture of humility before this book and I got nothing. Right. But I yeah. <laughs> on, on the other side, right. It's really, it, it is something that can change us. Even if we don't remember what we read, right. Even if we don't uh, recall specifics, the, just the act of reading immersing in a story can be really transformative. So I think for, for, for those reasons, reading literature is not the only key to kind of stepping into a way of being uh, just sure. and, and a whole in our discipleship and our living period. But it is a, it is an important one. Yeah. Uh, final question before we wrap up the subtitle of your book is how African-American literature can make our faith more whole and just the book and you today have exhibited that exceptionally well, but you know, I think writing also changes us. I often find, let me first say this. I have not written a book, so, <laughs> but, but I, I do write and I often find my views on certain experiences and issues change as I reflect and try to put that, put pen to paper. You know, you've clearly been thinking about African-American literature and faith for a long time. And I can't help but ask, what if anything changed for your faith as you wrote the book? Mm. I mean, I think, um, so I did not have, so going back to just sort of the nature of writing, I think people, you, people write books, people take up projects for writing out of curiosity, right? They haven't, they have a mm-hmm. hunch about something, they have a working hypothesis, but they also want to, they want to test it out. They want to develop it. They want to explore it. They want to sort of mine it and see what diamonds come up or what diamonds don't come up. So that's yeah. really what, what I was doing with this book where I knew, I knew African American, I believe this about African American literature. I believe this about any good literature, but I knew at this point in time, specifically African-American literature. And I had ideas for the chapter. I had a sense, but I wasn't quite sure how all of that would work out. So really everything that I talk about in the chapter, um, is, is how I grew, right. Either in the reaffirmation of conclusions and ideas and applications or the unearthing of new ones. Um, I might say specifically, I think the universal in particular, like that, that, that thread of conversation is one that sort of deepened for me from this. Um, I would also, so say a, uh, a deepened understanding of the cross um, really emerged for me, I think, out of the, the Cullen poems and working through um, through cross and the lynching tree, where I think I recognized, oh, here are some places where where I have maybe narrowed my understanding of of the cross and. And I had these these sort of understandings about moral influence or all these different sort of things. But I guess I didn't really realize, like, I, I really have only thought in this way um, and sort of I feel like I've got more more biblical through that through that process. So and really grew in worship. So I would say really, in a sense, the whole book, you know, but if you I know you're a good questioner, so you'd push me to specifics, <laughs> <you'd> say universal <laughs> in particular and in the Christ chapter. For sure. Well, Claude, I appreciate you taking the time to share today. I feel like we covered a lot and barely scratched the surface all at the same time, which I guess that's all good conversations to do that, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. To, to wrap up, where can uh, where can people find you online if they want to to keep up with you and? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm relatively uh, relatively on Twitter. You know, I'm, I'm I'm there from from time to time. So that's the way if people wanted to get a hold of me. Um, um, my website's first and last name um, claudeacher.com. If if people yeah they're interested in. Um, connecting in that way. I'd love to hear from readers. Uh, if you're enjoying the book, um, we'd love to hear that. And if you, if you enjoy it, um, you know, leave a review. I'm also a scandal of reading podcast with Jessica Hooten Wilson, kind of just okay. talking through literature. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm on there, one of the co-hosts, uh, part of that as well. So I'm kind of around in a couple of those spots. Um, and yeah, so folks are definitely able to, to kind of tap in if they want to follow what I'm up to. Excellent. 
The book is Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. The author is Pastor Claude Atchow. Claude, it's great to see you again, and thanks for taking the time to share today. Appreciate you, Mark. It's been a pleasure, man. All right, everyone, that's the show. You can find additional resources and a link to purchase Claude's book in the show notes. You can also share your own thoughts at markhackett.com. You can also subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast app to help others find us. Thanks for listening. See you next time.